we are in 2 Kings chapter number 22. Uh, if you look ahead, there's only a few more chapters left. I'll be honest, there's probably maybe one or two more, maybe depending on how the Spirit leads, left in this series. And all through it all, we've been looking at one specific theme. It is, in fact, the title for this series, The King of Kings. And we've shown, or we've striven to show, uh, and, and pinpoint and, and display all of the ways in which, regardless of history's circumstances, regardless of what is going on all around us and right in front of us, there is a king who is on his throne. And that king will never abdicate. That king will never relinquish his control over our days. And sometimes that's hard to see. Sometimes the kingship of the king of kings is very difficult to believe in. In fact, what we saw last week was probably the prime example of that. Do you remember we were going through chapter 21 last week? Chapter 21, of course, covers the despicable, which is the word in the Bible, to describe the things that Manasseh, that awful king of Judah, brought to the forefront. I have to imagine that if you were a faithful believer in Yahweh, when you saw what Manasseh was doing, you would have started to question or doubt or even fear that this king of kings that you were led to believe in was somehow not in control of those days. And it endured for almost 60 years, 60 years of darkness, 60 years of despicableness, taking its hold on the people of Judah. Manasseh made sure of bring, that, uh, that God's attention was now on bringing destruction and exile into that place. And in fact, his rebellion, his reign was so appalling that, in, in fact, God says, in, a sense, in effect, I've had enough. In verse 14, just really quick as a way of getting into this. Chapter 21, verse 14, notice what the Lord, what the Lord says. He says, I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Why? Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger. Since the day of their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. Those are words, I think, which should make our hairs stand on end at how awful it must have been that God says, I've had enough of my very people, and now they're going to be prey, they're going to be spoil for all the enemies that surround them. But as we pointed out, this disaster that's coming for the people of God in Judah wasn't some crazy thing. It was something that Judah had chosen. They had chosen this disaster as they had chosen to go the way of the heathen. Go the way of serving false God after false God. And so as chapter 21 closes and the son of Manasseh, Amon, has his body, it, it, with his body is just left in a ditch after conspiracy and betrayal. You might be well intended to believe that that disaster is here. <laughs> You've had Manasseh, he's done nothing. His son his reign goes up after two years in a cloud of smoke. Seems like disaster. And that's when the historian surprises us. 
But he includes this record of this one, this king, the boy who would be king, we could say, in Josiah. Look at verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. Interesting that the most surprising detail even here is in the fact that this historian tells us that Josiah took the throne of Judah at a mere eight years of age. Instead, the most surprising thing is what he says next about this young boy, Josiah. Notice verse 2. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Despite his upbringing, despite the fact that his dad and his granddad were some of the most despicable men in all of Judah's history, what do we know about Josiah? That he did what was right in the eyes of God. Hard to even fathom. Perhaps it was due to his mother. We don't know what influenced him from a very young age. Because even in Second Chronicles 34, it tells us from a young age, he had this inclination in his heart. He made a decision to renounce you know, his immediate heritage. What his dad has passed down. What his granddad has passed down. This heritage of animosity towards Yahweh. This heritage of despicable practice after despicable practice. Josiah says, no. I'm not following that. And perhaps he could see the destruction and the horribleness that it caused. And perhaps that what caused him at a very young age to say, no. I'm following the ways of my true covenantal father, David. Because that's what he decides. I'm not following what my dad did, what my granddad did. I'm following my true father, David, and the covenant that he made with Yahweh. And I'm going to not be swayed by anything that tries to distract me. And so, if we want to sum up Josiah's reign, instead of becoming just another in the, in the mounting dung heap of history of Judah's kings, what does he do? He separates himself. He distinguishes himself as a king worth remembering. Jump with me to chapter 23. Look at verse 25. Notice what the historian says. As sort of a summary of Josiah's reign. Chapter 23 verse 25. Before him. Before Josiah. There was no king like him. Who turned to the Lord. With all his heart. And with all his soul. And with all his might. According to the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. He is one in a million. He distinguishes himself ever since the kingdom of God separated and they divided. And it's always been a history of frustration and upheaval. There's never been a king like Josiah. There's never been a king like him who took the people of God and wrung them by their necks, if case may be. And he said, we are following Jehovah God. And it says there, with all his soul, with all his might, with all his heart, it brings us back and stretches us back into those days of Deuteronomy where we have that amazing sort of uh, thesis that serves as the premise of all of Israelite life that we are going to follow this God and no other. That was Josiah. And he does this about face on all of the evils that he had inherited. A kingdom of 
just awfulness. (laughs) The details of it are so horrible, it's hard to even pronounce it. These practices that were going on, all of the wretchedness that was going on, even in the house of God. And yet, as we're going to see, Josiah is able, because he is faithful to the words of the Lord, he ushers in this undeniable, but just unimagined revival. Imagine the weight on Josiah's shoulders. The course of this revival takes, of course, several years. But from eight years old to middle age, he's leading the people of God into, in a transformative renewal back to the things of Yahweh. He's championing something that's not popular. Not mainstream. That's not in everyone's vocabulary. Everyone has lived for 55 years in the depravity and despicableness of Manasseh and his son. And now here's Josiah. He's doing everything he can to run against what is mainstream. What is accepted. What is the vernacular wisdom of the day. He says, no. I'm following God. He was rejecting the status quo. So what happened? What brought on this turnaround? Well, that's where we get into chapter 22, verse 3. Because we see that even at a young age, he has this sort of intention, so to speak, to remake the house of God. To rebuild it, to come in and bring and repair its walls or so forth. We've seen this a couple times throughout the history of the people of God. The the house of the Lord, the temple has fallen into disrepair. And then a king comes along and decides that it's time to clean it out. It's time to make it new, make it fresh again. And so that's what he does. In verses 3 through 7, he talks to one of his servants, the servant named Shaphan. And he says, go to the high priest, Hilkiah. Go to him and tell him, now's the time to make a withdrawal from the church offering. And let's start the repairs on the church, essentially. Let's take a withdrawal, get some of the monies that have come in through the offering. Let's begin the repairs on God's house. Start cleaning out all the dusty shelves and the cobwebs and everything. This is God's house. You can, it's, it's a sign again that the cobwebs again in the temple of God are, yes, a very strong indication that the hearts of the people of God are also cobwebbed. Dirty and filthy and gross. And as they come in, it's very much a metaphor for what God is about to do in the hearts of everyone in that kingdom. So he commissions Shaphan, go to the priest, hire workers, repair the house of God. It needs our attention. And as the high priest begins cleaning out closet after closet, and he's organizing cabinet after cabinet, and he's stirring up all this dust, he stumbles upon some papers. that have been collecting dust for upwards of 60 years at this point. Notice verse 8. And Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And he, Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. You know, it's saying something when your priest has to find the book around which his whole job revolves. It tells you something about the state of Judah's spirituality when their high priest, the chief man in charge of Judah's spiritual life, has to find, discover the book he was supposed to. He was responsible for ministering. 
But I just imagine Hilkiah and these aides, this is conjecture, it's just my, my mind running. You know, they're in the temple of God and they're cleaning out all these closets and they discover this old, you know, filing box full of papers. Some of them are stained and wet. Some of them are eaten away. And they begin reading them. They begin sorting them. Maybe they've been disorganized, all the papers and scrolls, and they begin sorting them, and they begin reading them in context. And as they read, and as they read, they become more startled, more shaken. They become more moved by what they're reading, and they can't help. We have to read this. And so much so, this is so important. What we are finding and what we're reading, we have to bring it to the king. Because Hilkiah gives it to Shaphan. Shaphan, he brings it back into the king's court. Watch what happens. And he gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Verse 9. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to him, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it to the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. They've done what you said, king. But they've also found something. And Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Perhaps for the first time in Josiah's life, He's hearing the words of God's law read to him, read aloud. And as each word is read, as each syllable comes out of Shaphan's mouth, his heart is crushed and it's pummeled by the words. He gets smaller. He gets more dejected. He gets more distraught as word after word of scripture is read And his heart is so crushed that he cannot do anything but just rend his clothes. It's a sign in the Old Testament of utter anguish and remorse and agony. And this sign of rending your clothes is is, is meant to show us the intensity but also the authenticity of what Josiah is feeling. He can't help but do anything else. He falls to his knees and he's shedding his garments and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because that's the only response when God's law is read, but I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) This repentance that Josiah signifies here, that's what this signifies. True repentance. He's done some good things already, restoring the temple, but here they find the words of Of Yahweh. Written to them. Inspired. Specifically for them. And as they read. They cannot help but be moved. And be changed. And we know this change. In Josiah is sincere. Because of what change happens. In the kingdom of God itself. If you look over to chapter 23. Verse 4. I'm tempted To read all of these verses 14 through 20? I think I might. (laughs) Okay, I will. They're a little bit, let me tell you. The reason for my hesitancy, they're a little bit dark. But this is the type of change that happens. Watch Watch what occurs. So, this revival happens. They find the law. They're being changed. And look at what happens. Look at what comes from the hand of the king in terms of making sure that this revival is true. We're not going to leave anything of waste. 
from that old regime of falsehood and disbelief. Notice verse 4, And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and for Asherah and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests. He arrested them whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burn incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the book at the brook and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought out all the priests out of the cities and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on the ones left at the gate of the city. And so on and so forth all the way through verse 20. It goes on about how he's defiling and breaking and tearing down and burning and destroying and crushing to dust. He's leaving again, no stone unturned. We saw this with Hezekiah, right? In chapter 18, he goes and he's destroying the high places and so on and so forth. This makes Hezekiah look like child's play. He's tearing down everything. Every idol, every image, every wall, every vessel, every fork that was used in some sort of liturgy to some false god. He's saying, it's burned, it's nothing, it's useless. Get it out of here. He's destroying everything. Defiling everything. These places are despicable places who have nothing to do with God himself. And over and over again, we are told in painstaking detail of the ways in which Josiah took drastic measures to rid Judah of all this evil. And the historian wants us to see that. The burning and the arresting and the tearing down, the defiling. He even, in verses 15 and 16, fulfills a 300-year-old prophecy. Look at verse 15. Uh, Where is it? Moreover, at the altar of Bethel. So now he's even encroaching his revival movement into the land of Israel. Moreover, at the altar of Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place, he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Astra. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. <laughs> Eyebrow raising. Tomb raiding and burning the bones of all those false priests on that altar at Bethel. What a sight. If you want to know, you can, you can go back to 1 Kings, all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 13. That's roughly 300 years ago. A prophet burst into that room. And it, well, let me go there. Just so you can get there. Let me go there. 1 Kings 13. Notice. Watch. This is the faithfulness of God to his word. 300 years before, the kingdom of God had just dissipated and had been destructed and divided. Jeroboam, of course, brings in this awful, awful regime of false worship at Bethel. 
Second King or First Kings thirteen two, and the man, this man, this prophet, this unknown prophet, bursts into that room and says against the altar by the word of the Lord, and said, "O altar, altar, thus says the Lord: Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and whom human bones shall be burned on you." And it's fulfilled right here. Three hundred years later. A man named Josiah comes in with a heart of such devotion and passion and understanding that God is an unflinching God. The only God that Judah ought to serve. Everything else is but dust. And he reduces everything else to dust accordingly. This is a catalog, we could say, of scorched earth revival. And I think the historian wants us to see that along with seeing what Josiah has done, I think we're also supposed to see this is what Judah had become. As we're reading of high place and altar and idol and all of these male cult prostitutes that were part of worship services, that's the type of awfulness that Josiah inherited. And so as he is ridding this land of all of this debauchery and smoke fills the horizon. It's a smoke that signals the purge of God's repentance and revival in the hearts of the people. The people of God were in a terminal case of idolatry and the only measure that could suffice was what Josiah did, burning everything to the ground but did you notice what started this revival? What started it? Well, back in chapter 22. Because they found a book. Or we could more specifically say they found the book. Nine times in this chapter and then the chapter following, chapter 22 and chapter 23, it's referred to as a book or the book over and over again. We're going to follow what is, what is in this book. Of course, it's talking about the book of God, the Bible, the scriptures, the book of the law, the book of the covenant. That's what they found. And it might be so odd at first to say that this, the results of finding a book is scorched earth. All of the things that Josiah did, but of course we know, we know, we as the church, we know that this book is just not some lifeless, ordinary book. This is a book of life. It's a book of life. It's not a lifeless dead book of pages that are just black and white. It is a book which imparts life because it tells us about the one who is life. And, it, and the one who tells us about it is the spirit of life. That's what they found. The book of life. As the writer of the Hebrews says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what's on display. That word of God slicing and dicing the hearts of Josiah and all of his cabinet members. And now all of Judah is brought to their knees. 
because they read these ancient words, if you will. Ever true, changing me, changing you, changing all of Judah. And though they're ancient, they are just as relevant as ever. They read these words, and it's like they're speaking to them right in their own day, and they're brought to a sense of their sin. That's what Yahweh's word does. It's not dead, it's dynamic. It's living, it's active, and it imparts life because it's a book of life, and it brings dead sinners to resurrected life because it tells them about the one who is the life made manifest for them. That's what the Bible does. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so central to everything that we do. And notice, after this book is discovered, they can't help but read it. Did you notice in chapter 22, verse 8, Helkiah reads it? And he can't help. He has to share it. Now, Shaphan, you read it. And Shaphan reads it, and then he brings it to the king, and he reads it for the king. Everyone's reading it. And then jump ahead to verse uh, number 1 of chapter 23. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read, and they're hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And now all the people are reading it. They cannot help but get this book out. They can't help but have everyone read it. You've got to read what I just read. And I think the reaction to this word, I think, shows the way in which God's word satisfies hungry souls. Think about Judah at this time. As we said, the temple was a symbol, perhaps, of their own hearts, filled with cobwebs and dust and dank, dark corners. The people of God are spiritually starved. And then you bring the word, which is the book of life, which is the bread, the bread of heaven for all of the people of God, and they are feasting on it. It's unopened, and now they have this huge feast, and they're consuming consuming it like ravenous beggars. And they're saying, give us more of this word. We want more of this word. And they're reading it, and they're being inspired by it. And there's this wholesale revival which takes place, all because they found God's book of law the book of the covenant you can go back I think it's very much I don't know why interestingly this is sidebar when I was reading all the commentaries for this everyone was like what did they really find what did they really read well I think they found Deuteronomy if you read Deuteronomy there's I think I don't know like eight or nine different instances where it repeats that same phrase book of the law book of the covenant I don't know why that's so hard to understand They're finding God's law. And they're reading it. And they're being changed by it. And let me tell you, I know, maybe you don't remember this, but a couple months ago we preached about the same thing happening in Ezra's day. And we made the same comment, and I think it's worthy of here, that this is how every revival begins. It begins when people of God find, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps they rediscover the power and the preeminence of God's word. Every revival in the history of the church has started from that. God's word's found. 
God's words found as powerful. God's words found as preeminent, as life-giving. And suddenly people wake up and they realize this is God's law. This is God's word and God's word to me and God's words about himself. And it changes everything. And the revival starts. People are changed. Every great awakening has happened because God's word has been found to be central to every facet of life. Which is just to say, as I, I, I said it before, I'll say it again, sorry. But we don't need something extra in our lives to revive this church, this community, this country. We have it right in front of us. We have the words of God. They're the ones that do the changing. We do not. They are the ones that give the life. We do not. If you want to pray for revival, open your Bible. That's where it starts. And maybe, maybe someone you know, maybe you here this morning, you need to be like Hilkiah and find the book of the law again. And maybe you need to brush off some dust. And read it for perhaps the first time. And read it with eyes fresh to receive God's wisdom and God's love and God's grace. Because that's what's pouring out on every page. God's word, rightly understood and faithfully proclaimed, will always bring people to their knees. That's what happened in Josiah's life. He was brought to his knees. And I think that's a great image here. Verse 11, he's tearing his clothes. The words of God's law still echoing in his ears. And he's suddenly brought to a fresh, renewed realization of just how holy God is. And just how utterly unholy he and the rest of Judah was. This is God's word. This is the effect of God's law. His word of law always reveals sin. It will always leave you feeling exposed. That's what it's designed to do. If you read God's law and you say, I'm making it, you're not reading it correctly. God's law is meant to reveal, reveal just how sinful we are, just how blind we are, bringing all of those things that we thought we had gone over, thought we had conquered, bring them out to the fresh light of day as sins that deserve to be strangled and punished. And guess what? That's when we're told God's word of gospel. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but that's what God's words... God's word of law is. As James says in James chapter 1. If you can go there but I'll read it. We know these verses but I think these verses apply so directly to this little instance with Josiah. James 1 verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. God's law is a mirror. This is not like a funhouse mirror at the state fair, which either makes you look really short and stocky or really tall and skinny, and it makes you laugh and giggle. That's fun. Those are fun mirrors, but how effective would that be for helping getting you ready in the morning? Not very likely. God's word doesn't distort the image of us. 
actually, it bluntly reveals, painfully reveals every blight, every blemish, every little stinking sin. And it's meant to, it's a word of exposing A word of bringing everything out into the light of day. And that's the point. The point of the law is not to make sin manageable. The point of the law is to bring you to a startling realization that the law is completely unmanageable. That we can't manage our sin. We can't manage even our keeping those little dictates of it. Because then, what does that do? It brings us to a point when we're like Josiah, and all we can do is fall to our knees and rend our clothes, and we can say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or as Paul in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? That's the effect of the law. God wants us to read his law and come to that point where we have no other option than to say, who will save me from this body of death? And that right there, that space right there, and that wretchedness and that horribleness and that awful feeling of utter guilt, that's when God's word of gospel comes. And it tells us, as it does in Romans 7, praise be to God Through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Paul's deliverance was. Josiah could see it as only the promised Messiah that was so echoed throughout all of the books of the law. But did you notice? Did you notice what they did after reading this? Don't think that Josiah didn't have a sense of where his deliverance came from. He knew. He didn't know what it would be in this guy named Jesus. He knew it would come in God's promised Messiah. The seed that would come and crush the head of the serpent. Because notice what happens. 2 Kings chapter 23. Look at verse 21. Notice what they do. And the king commanded all the people. Keep the Passover to the Lord your God. As it is written in in this book of the covenant, for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of the king of Josiah, this Passover was kept in the Lord or kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. It's the first Passover observed in ages. And it is a Passover for the ages. As the people of God observe this incredibly central and crucial observance for the people of God. And what is the point of Passover? To showcase the way in which God's wrath passes over God's people, even the people that deserve it. I know we're flipping to a lot. Go to Exodus chapter 12. I just want you to see this because it's awesome. They're keeping Passover for the first time. Where did God institute Passover? In Egypt, when Israel was in bondage thousands of years before this very moment where Josiah is now observing it for the first time in decades. And what did God institute this thing for? Remember, this is the 10th and final plague. The angel of death is going to come over and kill all of your firstborn. This is the first plague that was even going to affect the people of Israel. And they were given strict instructions. If you don't want your firstborn dead, follow these instructions. Kill this lamb, this lamb without blemish, without spot. Kill it and eat it and smear its blood on the doorpost. And notice verse 13. 
Second, uh, Exodus 12, 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, Passover, gospel, atonement. You want to know what the gospel looks like in the Old Testament? It looks like a lamb's blood being smeared on the doors of a house. And in the same way, that blood is supposed to picture the lamb's blood, the perfect lamb, the lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. And his blood, smeared on your heart, causes God's wrath to pass over you. See, that's what Josiah was believing in when he's here finding this Passover again. Imagine you're finding all this law and then you come to this amazing portion of God's law where after all these things that you cannot keep, that you cannot fulfill, that you cannot live up to, and then suddenly you find the chapter on the Day of Atonement, on the Passover. Deliverance. All the things that Josiah cannot keep. They are passed over by this blood of this lamb. And now here they're keeping it again for the first time in decades. They have a revival with a sense that there is a deliverer coming from God. And he's going to pass over my sins because of my faith in that. For all of his effort, Josiah brought the people here to hear these words of good news I must hasten through the rest because there's just a little bit. Because it's, it's amazing to think about this story. The word of law found, revival spark, is sweeping. True revival. Gospel being preached. People's lives being changed. And yet, what's so fascinating is when we come to verse 26 of chapter 23. After all of that, notice verse 26. Still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I have said my name shall be there. I think we're meant to be speechless. After all of that, all of the change, all of the renewal, all of the repentance, all of the revival, all of the things happening, all of the dedications, all of the devotions, still God was going to bring his judgment on the people of Judah. Even for all of his effort, Josiah could not save his own kingdom from certain disaster. Which I imagine has to be just defeating words. But actually, they're words that Josiah knew going into it. Go with me to chapter 22. Look at verse 13. He finds the law right after that. And he says, we gotta go, we got to go find a prophet. So in verse 13, he says, let's go find a prophet. We need to get some insight onto this book of the law that we just found. And so verse 14, Hilkiah the priest and Achaim and Akbor and Shaphan and Isaiah went to Huldua, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tigva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. And they talked with her. 
And she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me, and they have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus says you, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard. Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse and you have torn your clothes and have wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back the word to the king. He knew, going into it, that there will be disaster certain for your people. You're just not going to see it. It's just not going to happen in your day. It'll happen after you're dead and gone. It'll happen after you're already in the grave. But it will come. That disaster, it's, it's just been delayed. It's just been deferred to the next generation. But it's definitely on its way. How would you respond to that news? You might be entirely defeatist. What's the point? What's the point of going on? Disaster's going to come anyways. Why even do anything? Why even lift a finger to obey this law if that thing is already certain? It's already coming. What? It's not going to change anything. Why would we even want to obey it? I have to imagine that Josiah was overcome with a lot of mixed emotions. He's perhaps, thank God, I don't have to see that disaster. It's not going to come in my time. But he's also devastated. That his faith cannot render that disaster unnecessary. I thought that I could save my people. But you can't, Josiah, God tells him. His devotion couldn't change Judah's destiny. And he knew that prior to stoking all of the flames of revival. He knew that his revivals wouldn't be, quote unquote, the lasting salvation of his people. That disaster would still come. The destruction would still come for his people and his kingdom. Though he would be dead and gone, he wouldn't see it. It was still going to come. And yet he persisted and he continued in his quest to bring every Judean citizen back to repentance, back to Yahweh anyway. That's what he determined to do. He knew he wouldn't be successful in redeeming the people of Judah, but he persisted anyway. Because I think he knew that that is what faith does. You and I, this morning, we are called to live lives of faith, but especially lives of faith that aren't concerned over whether or not our faith will be successful. Will we be able to convert our friends? Will we be able to convert our neighbors or our town or our nation or our world? Sadly, likely not. 
That's not me being a pessimist. That's not me trying to make you discouraged from sharing the gospel. But if the great commission to make disciples of all nations is a law of perfection, we're failing miserably. But it's not. It's not a law. It is a commission. The Great Commission is not about results. The Great Commission is about faithfully proclaiming and faithfully pressing in and for the truth, even when it's unpopular. Go and make disciples of all nations. Be faithful to my word. Be faithful to my truth, guys, is what Jesus was telling them. And in the same, in sort of the same certain way, that's what we have. Whenever the book of God is opened, people are changed and they want to change the world. But don't misunderstand the Great Commission to be a law that you have to change the world. That's not your job. Did you know that? Have you felt burdened by that? God's word doesn't commission us to change the world. That's not our job. That's God's. He says so himself, Revelation 21.5, I have come to make all things new. He's going to do that. He's the one who changes the world. All that God has called you and I to do is to represent him, the one who actually can, the one who actually will change the world. We are called to represent him by living lives of faith, regardless of the circumstances, a.k.a. Josiah. He lives a life of faith, regardless of the circumstances, knowing that they won't change even when his faith is found successful in certain hearts. It won't change the outcome. I think that, for me, you know what it does for me? It inspires me right now. Can I change America? No. Probably not. I know the one who can. So right where I am, I'm called to be faithful to God's words of law and gospel and proclaim them as loud as I can. Knowing that the results are God's. If he chooses to remake this valley in central Pennsylvania and bring it up as the central hub of reformation in America, praise be God. But even if he doesn't, you know what's going to keep being preached in this church, and I pray in all of the churches of this valley, the same gospel that changes sinners' lives. Because that's what we're called to do. We're called to faith and obedience and uh, we're called to leave all of the outcomes with the one who has already ordained them from the beginning of the world. Our hope for a better and renewed world doesn't rest on our ability to make it happen. uh, Josiah, his devotion couldn't change Judah's destiny and likewise your faith can't change America's fate. For that, we are in desperate need of someone bigger and better. There's only one who can change the destiny of every sin-stricken soul, who can rescue us from all of our miserable fates, and that is the one who is the true and better Josiah, Jesus himself. Who when he comes, he purges the land fully and finally of all of its sin and sedition and strife. How? By taking it on his shoulders and then leaving it behind in the grave. 
That's how he changes the world. And he does this by becoming sin. He enters our world of disaster and he takes that disaster on himself in our place. That is the gospel. God has given us that great news and we get to share it. We get to proclaim it. We get to preach it. We get to live it. That's what we are called to do like Josiah. To press on in faith for the truth and the hope of God regardless of where we find ourselves in history. We are called to that life of faith. Knowing that God's words are better than man's. Knowing that there is only one who can change destinies, save lives, and secure eternities. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Praise be God, his wrath has passed over us. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes in a word of prayer.